Our passage this morning is found in Romans chapter 2, verses 17 through 29. But if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law, boast in God, and know his will and approve what is excellent, because you are instructed from the law, and if you are sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth. You then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? While you preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law dishonor God by breaking the law. For, as it is written... The name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. For circumcision indeed is of value if you obey the law. But if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. So if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? Then he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law, will condemn you who have the written code and circumcision, but break the law. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. This is the word of the Lord. One of the uh, great privileges and joys I have that the Lord has given to me is being a dad. And we are uh, back now. We have four kids, uh, 10 all the way down to almost one. So we're back into toddler stage, a stage of constant vigilance. You cannot keep your, your, take your eyes off of these young ones for a second or they are destined to get into some serious trouble and pain. We have tons of toys uh, we've acquired over the course of four children. Uh, it's amazing though still, fourth child in and like none of those toys are entertaining to the toddler. And all these toys laid out and where does the toddler, where does the little one want to go? The open door that's full of things that can bring a lot of pain into their life, like full of little things that they could choke on. The one, has, one door that they could go into has a ladder that they've tried to climb on uh, that they will surely not make it to the top of. Uh, we have all these toys, and, and they go to the open door. And so here's what we do. We, you know this. If you've been in this stage in your life, you might have a baby gate. You might have door. We, we just shut doors. Like we have the hallway. There's some safe spots within our house, but the unsafe spots, we just close those doors so that the child won't go into those places full of dangerous things that could, they could choke on or, you know, could harm them in some way. We close all those doors so that the child will move towards the things that we have provided so graciously for them, for their good and for their enjoyment, things that will bring joy in their life and not pain. And it strikes me as we read Romans chapter 2 and as we've read it together that Paul is doing something of the same. He is going for a specific audience that's explicit now in, in the end of Romans chapter 2, the Jews, and he is going for them and he is closing doors of options for them that they think that if I run to this door, I can find safety and security and comfort and salvation and I'm not under the judgment of God if I'm in this room. Uh, this place is not a place that can bring me pain, but it will bring me safety. And Paul is going around those doors that he knows exist for these Jews and he's closing them them for them. He is logically, persuasively, systematically, biblically closing perceived options that they think they have before God to bring them salvation that aren't actually there. And so in chapter 2, Paul continues, as we close it out this morning, he continues his diatribe, this, this rhetorical dialogue with a, a Jewish person, and he's explicitly here speaking to the Jew. And, and here's how he picks up the, the diatribe in verse 17. He says, if you call yourself a Jew and you rely on the law and boast in God. Uh, let's remember the context here. He started in chapter 1, verse 18, and he said that the, 
God's wrath is being revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men that should have included everybody, but there are a few that would have maybe tried to read themselves out of chapter 118, and Paul makes sure that in chapter 2 they're squarely put into that context. He's remembering and reminding them that they too are under God's wrath and judgment that has been revealed against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. But in the context of chapter 1, the, the Jews could have argued the, those are things for, for Gentiles. And we as the Jewish people, we have certain advantages and privileges before God that they didn't have. And so surely as, as God's people who he loves, we couldn't be like those that the wrath of God is revealed against. Surely we are those who have an advantage and a privilege over others. And so this is what Paul is going after here in chapter 2. He says, if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God. He gives three things there, and those are three good things. You, you call yourself a Jew, that would have been the, the people of God, the people that God came down, he made a covenant with. These are special people, people that he dearly loved. You might remember when Jesus was having an argument with some of the Pharisees in John chapter 8, they boasted, we're the offspring of Abraham, to which he has to say later, actually, you're offspring of Satan, not of Abraham. But they were boasting of that. We're, we're offspring of Abraham. Surely we don't need the truth that Jesus says that is going to set us free because we're offspring. We have what we need. We're offspring of Abraham. So he says you call yourself a Jew. That's a positive thing in and of itself. He says the second one is rely on the law. Think about the ways that the scripture talks about the law. In Psalm chapter 19, verse 7, the law of the Lord, it's perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord, it's sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord, they're true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey, dripping some of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned, and in keeping them there is great reward. This is the, the law. You, you boast in this and rely on this law. It's a good thing. It's like it's sweeter than honey. It's more precious than gold. And so the Jews were to conclude about the law what Paul is going to say in chapter 7, verse 12, that the law is holy, and the, and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. And as the Jews, as God's chosen people, it's been handed down to them, they have it. And see, it says, you, you call yourself a Jew, and you rely on the law, that would have been a good thing. And he says, you boast in God. And Jeremiah 9, you remember that? He says, let's not boast in riches. Let's not boast in wisdom or strength. What do you need to boast in? You know me, that you understand and know me. A boasting in God wouldn't have been a, a negative thing. God wanted his people to boast in him. And they, as the Jewish people, could have rightly had a boast in God. So none of these things that he says in verse 17, as he speaks specifically to the Jew, is in and of themselves viewed negatively. They gave some real benefits to the Jews. And, and Paul adds to that, verse 18. He says, and, and you know his will, and you prove what is excellent because you are instructed by the law. The, the law, again, revealed good, holy things. Good and holy things like the character of God. What's he like? What does he want? What does he desire in this earth? What does he desire from people? It, it revealed those kind of things. It revealed what righteous living looked like. And so they were to conclude again about the law. It was holy and righteous and good and good for us as his people to live under. And so it should have led to some consequences. If they have the instruction of this law, it should have led to this verse 19. You, you, you yourself are sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor to, of the foolish, a teacher of children, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth. The, the law, the embodiment of knowledge and truth, it gave God's people certain advantages, and, and it gave God's people a ministry to nations. And when God called Abraham, he said, uh, he blessed him in order to be a blessing, and through Abraham, there's going to be a blessing to all the nations of the earth. In Exodus, he, he draws them out from Egypt where they were slaves, and he redeems them, and he says, I'm making you a kingdom of priests. You, Jews, you, Israel, this nation, you're going to be these people that, that minister my name to the nations. You're a kingdom of priests. In Deuteronomy chapter 4, the nations were to look in at these people and see something different. Chapter 4, verse 6 says, keep them, speaking of the law and the commandments, do them. 
For that will be your wisdom, your understanding in what? In the sight of the peoples, who when they hear all these statutes will say, surely this is a great nation, is a wise and understanding people. For what great nation is there that has a God so near to it as the Lord our God and is to us, is to us whenever we call upon him? And what great nation is there that has statutes and rules so righteous as all the law that I set before you today? Or Isaiah chapter 2 pictures the, the nations streaming to the mountain of the Lord to be taught because they see and rightly understand that there's something different about this nation. And so they're, they're pouring in to hear the instruction from this people at the mountain of the Lord. Or Isaiah chapter 42 verse 6 talks about the, the Israelites, Israel being a, a light to the nations. They are these things. They have that role because they had the embodiment of knowledge and truth in the law. And in the law, because they had that embodiment of knowledge and truth, they could carry this role out to the nations. The, the privileges and the benefits listed then that Paul gives through 17 through 20 are, are not viewed negatively. But they did lead to a self-righteous conclusion from many Jews. That all of God's judgment and the wrath that he speaks about revealing from heaven in chapter 1... That was for somebody else. That was for others. But we're the Jews. We have the embodiment of knowledge and truth. We are not part of the problem, part of the solution. We're light to the nations. We're guide to the blind. But in carrying out those tasks, there was this question that they hadn't asked, but they needed to. And Paul asked it of them in verse 21. You then, who teach others, do you not teach yourself? Jesus stated when he was ministering in, in Matthew chapter 23, which is kind of a scathing section of scripture from Jesus, where he calls out the hypocrisy of the Jews. He says, yeah, you might uh, do what they say, but they, they preach these things and they don't practice them. And Paul's question here in verse 21 aims at the same type of self-righteousness that Jesus was confronting in Matthew chapter 23. The same sense of hypocrisy that was present among the Jews. The, the hypocrisy that would then find the, the Gentiles and others squarely in the wrath that's revealed in chapter 1, but would place themselves outside of it in Romans chapter 2. Now Paul's main point here as we're going to go through this entire section, it is not specifically about hypocrisy. Um, but that question in verse 21 is, is one worth asking. One worth putting on our frequently asked question list as we live our lives. See, it can be all too easy to address the splinters in others and ignore logs in our own eyes. To, to work to teach others, which is in itself, a, again, a good thing. It's not viewed negatively to teach others, but fail to teach ourselves. And, and part of our role, if you're a Christian, if you're in Christ, if you know Jesus, part of our role is to teach. Jesus called his disciples to himself, and he sent them out saying, go make disciples. How are you to make disciples? You're baptizing them. You're, you're sharing the gospel so they could hear it. And, and if they hear it with faith, they need to be baptized. And you're teaching them to obey all that I've commanded. So there's a, a teaching role that is present for all believers. And so that is part of us as Christians to the nations. We're to be teaching. Parents are to teach their children. There's this one another ministry that Paul talks about in the New Testament several times that's going to include some teaching elements. And so if that's true of us as Christians, we better ask this question of verse 21. You then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? That, that's a question for us. That's a question that needs to confront our own hypocrisy that certainly is uh, present within us. Do, do we hold up the truth to others that we're unwilling to hold up to ourselves? Do we let the word, as we want it to read the culture and read sinners and read them and share and point out to them what they're doing wrong, how they're sinning against God, do we let that same word read us, be a mirror, not just to them, but to us, pointing out all of our flaws and imperfections and sins that we might repent and walk closer with the Lord Jesus and be more like him? Do we let that word call us to repentance? Not reading it as a word for somebody else, but as a word that needs to call us to repentance, that needs to empower us toward obedience because we don't have it. But for the Christ in me, we have no obedience. We could ask it the way James says it. Right? Are we hearers of the word only or are we doers? And when we ask that, it reveals the same need in us that is present in others. 
And that's what Paul is aiming at. That's, that's his main point about hypocrisy. Is that he, he's pointing it out so he'll show them their need before God, just like he was aiming to show others their need before God in chapter 1. And so verse 21 is a question for us. Paul puts it in this diatribe for these Jews, and he follows up this question with three more questions. He says, while you preach against stealing, do you not steal? You who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? Now, th- th- there's a lead question here, and that was found in the verse, part of verse 21. You then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? That's the lead question. And, and the three questions that follow, they clarify, they give examples, they give illustrations, they argue the question of verse 21. So he says, you who preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say don't commit adultery, all those things listed in chapter 1, do you commit adultery? You who say, you know, you abhor uh, idolatry, do you rob temples? Uh, all three of these are associated with the Ten Words, the Ten Commandments that is listed in the Law of Moses. So don't steal, don't commit adultery, uh, no idolatry, uh, Commandments 1 and 2 there. And, and I think to us, most of us come to these first two, and I think that that makes sense, all right? I could see how someone could steal. I could see how, how someone might break that command. I, I could see how, how maybe one must not commit adultery. So yet we know some adultery in the Old Testament. It's very vivid a, a few times. Like I could see that, but that last one is a bit mysterious, and, and I don't know that we can take the mystery out of it. I think it would have been heard and understood in a way that the original readers would have known in a way that we might not be able to know. But we do know that from that culture, from that context, robbing temples was known, and it was associated with idolatry. And so I think that Paul is speaking of, of real sins here. But we got to ask the question, were these three questions, these three sins, were, were they actually present in the Jews? Now, some would, well, some would kind of navigate around this by saying, well, yes, spiritually they were present. Inwardly, in their heart, they were present. And, and I'm sure that Paul would affirm that, that there's idolatry in their heart, there's theft in their heart, there, there's uh, adultery in their heart. I'm sure Paul would affirm that. But I got to ask, is Paul speaking of sins of the heart here? Because Paul's argument only works if the sins they're calling out are the same sins that they themselves are committing. So if they are calling out outward adultery, then he is saying, are you guilty of the exact same thing? That's the only way that Paul's argument works here. And so if he's teaching against outward physical adultery, which I think he is, doesn't give any clue that he's not, then Paul isn't speaking of inward lust and then breaking that. Paul is not, I don't think, saying with these three questions that then all Jews are guilty of these, that all Jews are guilty of stealing and adultery and idolatry and robbing temples, but that these three represent the problem of the Jews that are relying on the law because they're breaking the very law that they're teaching to keep to others. I I like one commentator helps us when he says, it is not then that all Jews commit these sins, but that these sins are representative of the contradiction between claim and conduct that, get this, does pervade Judaism. So perhaps Paul chooses these sins that not only contradict the, the Ten Commandments, but have also equivalent sins within the Gentiles. So they're present in both camps, And they vividly illustrate the principle of verse 21. The principle that the Jews violate the same law that they teach. Which supports, I think, Paul's conclusion, which is found in verse 23 and 24. You who boast in the law dishonor God by breaking the law. For as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. The Jews think, hey, we have an advantage over the Gentiles because we possess the law. We have the embodiment of knowledge and truth. And it surely shelters us in some way from the judgment of God. Surely, as God's people, we have salvation from God because we have this law. They think that having the law and their role as as God's people in the world, as light to the nations, instructors to the blind, gives them some sort of advantage, that their role as God's people gives honor to God. And at least that was the goal. And so they boast in the law, he says. They rely on the law, thinking it gives them an advantage and puts them above Gentiles in regards to salvation and judgment. But the law that they boast in is the very law that they're guilty of breaking, as Paul points out above. 
The law that they rely on is the law that condemns them before God because it's the law that they disobey themselves. And their breaking of the law and their disobedience of the law is dishonoring to God and to his name among the Gentiles. Where the nations were to, remember Deuteronomy chapter 4, were to come and look at this people keeping this law and the commandments from God and to say, look at the wisdom here, look at the understanding here. What kind of people is like this that has this kind of God? Where they were supposed to come and do that. Instead, what they're doing is what Isaiah 52.5 says and that Paul quotes here. That the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. God's name is being despised. And Paul lays the cause of that at the Jews' feet. Now, do you remember the charge of chapter 1, verse 18 and following? In chapter 1, verse 21, he, he kind of sums up the core of, of sin that the wrath of God is revealed against. He says, although they knew God, they didn't honor God or give thanks to him. The core is not honoring, giving thanks to, glorifying God. The Jews would have been able to spot Gentiles in that in Romans chapter 1, but they wouldn't have been as quick to suspect themselves of those who would have failed to honor God. That's exactly what Paul charges them of here, doesn't he? You're not honoring God. You're, you're breaking the law. You can't honor God by breaking the law. And so Paul is clear, just as the Gentiles and others in Romans 1 have failed to honor God, glorify God, give thanks to God as they should have, the Jews too have done the same thing by breaking that very same law. And so where does this leave the Jews who possess the law, who Paul says here in this diatribe, they rely on it, they boast in it. Where does it leave them? It leaves them under judgment. Relying on the law and boasting in the law will not shield the Jews or anybody from judgment if they break it. Chapter 2, verse 13, Paul said, It's not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God. It's the doers of the law who will be justified. That the law that was given to the Jews was given to them that they might honor God. So if they break it, they fail to honor God, which is, again, the same sin of chapter 1. And they're breaking it that is dishonoring to him and puts them squarely under the judgment of God like we saw all men in chapter 1. And so Paul presses this point further home to the Jews when he addresses circumcision and in the rest of this section of chapter 2. Circumcision was this covenant sign for God's people. It set them apart from all the nations of the earth. And he is going to argue that as a possession of the law, it's not going to shield you from God's judgment because you break the law. Circumcision falls right in that same category. This practice of circumcision was given in Genesis chapter 17 to Abraham and to those who were his offspring after him. And when God gives Abraham the sign of circumcision, he says, this is not just for you, it's for offspring after you. This is for the Jewish people. This is for the nation of Israel. And so the Jews then came to this place where they held that circumcision was necessary to be a part of the covenant people, to be faithful to God, to be in right relationship with him, to have salvation from him, to be in covenant with God. And so we need to think of this rightly because this isn't as culturally relevant for us as it would have been for Jews, for Paul's original audience. It wasn't merely a sign of, of some ethnicity or ethnic status. One commentator helps us when he says that circumcision was a claim to religious preeminence. Like we're, we're the actual people of God because God gave us this sign of the covenant. And here's the sign. We have the sign of this covenant. It's an assurance of salvation. We're, we're in. We're, we're part of the people of God. We're, we're keeping the covenant as part of the people of God that he told us to keep. And so in circumcision, Paul is going after something major. Something he says here a couple different times here and in chapter 3, he's going to say it's a value. In, in chapter 3, verse 1 and 2, he says, then what advantage has a Jew or, or what value, what is the value of circumcision? Much in every way. He's going after something of value, but here's what he says in verse 25. Circumcision indeed is of value, if you obey the law. But if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. It's a value, he says. Sure, if, it's, if the law is obeyed, if the law is kept. And if they're going to do that, they might be in some trouble in, in a parallel passage in Galatians chapter 5. Here's what, sa here's what Paul says in verse 3. He says, I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision... But he's obligated to keep the whole law. It'll be a value to you if you're going to keep the whole law. You can have circumcision, fine, but you need to keep all of the law then. You're obligated to keep all of it. 
If you're going to rely on circumcision, you're going to need to rely on all the law. Paul has established they haven't done that. In chapter 2, starting in verse 1, all the way down to where we are now, he's tried to establish among the Jews, you haven't kept the whole law. You've broken the law. And so if you're going to rely on circumcision as those who have broken the law, you're counted as, regarded as, what he says in chapter 2 here, as uncircumcision. If you can keep, have circumcision and you don't keep the whole law, then in God's sight, you're part of the uncircumcised. You're, you're outside of the covenant. You're outside of the covenant people of God. You're outside salvation that God gives to his people. There's no religious preeminence in that. There's no assurance of salvation in that, unless you're keeping the whole law. So if you're circumcised and don't keep the whole law, you should have no assurance of salvation Instead, you should have assurance that you're under judgment. That's what Paul's getting at. And so Paul's going to contrast the, the one who is circumcised, who breaks the law, with the one who is uncircumcised and who keeps the law. That's what he does in verse 26, furthering his point. So if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? The, the reference here to the Gentile, that is those they would have considered uncircumcised, who keep the law brings up the question that we had last week, right? From, from verse 7, verses 14 through 16, on, on who this person is. Is Paul speaking hypothetically that if someone could keep the law, again, hypothetically speaking, then they have you know, good standing before God? Or is he thinking, as, as I suggest, that Paul here in verse 7, verse 14 through 16, including here in verse 26, that Paul is speaking of a Gentile Christian. Now, again, if, if you think that it's hypothetical before, you could still go to this possibility that right here in this verse that Paul is actually still thinking about Gentile Christians, and I think that we can see why. Because it seems like here's what he's speaking of. A Gentile Christian is in view because in verse 26, he labels them as those who keep the law, but they're not circumcised. Right? So there's, they're keeping the law, but, but not the cultural aspects of it at least. And in verse 27, there are those who keep the law. So there's a repeated description, and both times they are those who keep the law with no indication that this description of them is something that is hypothetical. He, he doesn't describe how they keep the law, just that they do. And, and there's a parallel passage in Romans chapter 8, verse 4. And in Romans chapter 8, verse 4, it describes how one who could be uncircumcised and keep the law. Romans 8, verse 4 says... In order that the righteous requirement of the law, he's speaking of those who, verse 1, have no condemnation in Christ. In verse 4, they, they, in order that the righteous requirement of law might be fulfilled in them who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. And so, chapter 8, verse 4 shows how someone who's uncircumcised could keep the law by walking according to the Spirit. Here, in chapter 2, the uncircumcised keep the precepts of the law, and in chapter 8, one fulfills the righteous requirement of the law, and in the original language, those righteous requirement of law fills the precepts of the law are almost identical phrases. And so I think maybe chapter 8, verse 4 refers to how, to how one who is uncircumcised, how one who is but not condemned in Christ can fulfill the law. So Paul also describes the uncircumcised here is who keeps the law, and he says that those who are uncircumcised but keep the law, what are they regarded as? They're regarded as those who are circumcised. Will not your uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? Right? That's what he's arguing. He's saying that you need to be understood that this person that I'm speaking of here is one who is understood in right relationship with God. It is one who is part of those who would receive salvation from God. In other words, they're part of the full membership of the people of God. They're not under judgment anymore, but one that will be saved, will be regarded as those who are part of the people of God on that day. That actual salvation and judgment are in view seems to be supported by verse 27. Because he says, then he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you who have the written code and circumcision but break the law. So the uncircumcised Gentile is going to add their witness to the judgment of the circumcised Jew on the day of judgment. The possession of the law, having the sign of, the, of circumcision, the sign of the covenant, did not save them from judgment. And the Gentile witness here will testify to that reality, that the uncircumcised keeping the law is itself accusatory evidence against the Jews who had the law. 
So having the written code, having the the letter of the law, having the sign of circumcision only brings about condemnation if one breaks the law. And Paul has worked thoroughly to establish and will state even more clearly in chapter 3, verse 23, that no one keeps the law. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. He's stating that in, in so many words here, that you think that you're outside of this, judgment from God because you have the law, because you have circumcision, but you are under judgment from God because you break the law that you boast in. You're working against the law that you are trying to say that that protects us. So it's not the possession of the law or the physical sign of circumcision that help the Jew on the day of judgment, that save from God's wrath, that brings salvation on that day. And he continues, verse 28, No one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the Spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. Now, Paul is making some sharp contrasts that you see here. He gives some negatives and two negative statements, and then he's going to give the positive and a couple positive statements. Negative. A Jew is not outward, and circumcision is not outward or physical. Verse 29, he's going to kind of reverse that and say it positively. The Jew is one who is inwardly different, and circumcision is a matter of the heart. There's the positive and the negative, the the inward and the outward that he is contrasting here. And it's not the possession of the law or the physical sign of circumcision that's saved. It's it's the inward that saves, the matter of the heart. It's, It's being one who has true circumcision. And because the secrets of the heart, in chapter 2, verse 16, are are judged by God, it's the heart that matters before God. Not the outward, not the physical. That's not to say that they have nothing to say about anything. Paul will get to that a lot in the rest of the book of Romans. But it's the heart that must be circumcised, Paul is getting at. Being a Jew, having the sign of circumcision, doesn't mean that one is truly circumcised. Doesn't mean, in other words, that one is truly part of the people of God, part of the covenant, underneath the salvation of God, safe before the judgment of God. Circumcision doesn't guarantee one is included in salvation. And Paul, I think, states here clearly that the lack of circumcision doesn't guarantee that you're outside of salvation. In fact, he says, again, you're not a Jew who is one outwardly, but circumcision is, nor is circumcision outward and physical. A Jew is one inwardly. Circumcision is a matter of the heart by spirit, not by the letter. What what Paul is getting at is actually something pretty radical to say, pretty radical to declare, because Paul is asserting right here at the end of chapter 2 that circumcision is not necessary for salvation, which was a major thing for the Jews, that if you're going to be part of the people of God, you have to be circumcised. And so in a sense, Paul is working against the Mosaic Covenant, And what he's asserting instead is what's required is not a physical circumcision. What's required is a circumcision of the heart. That's what's required before God. Physical circumcision he is asserting isn't. Heart circumcision he is asserting is. And many in that day were questioning that very thing. They had a Jerusalem council to figure out how do we include the Gentiles in on this. Paul has to write a letter to the Galatians to figure out what do we do with those who are saying, yeah, we love the gospel, sure, but we're going to add in circumcision with it. Many in that day were questioning if circumcision was required for Gentiles who have become Christians to be part of the people of God. And Paul is going to say in a lot of different ways, but he says so here in his argument that he's asserting, the answer is no. Salvation, being part of the people of God, that's a matter of the heart. That is, he says, by the Spirit, not by the letter. That is the law. There's a a parallel passage to that in in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, where he asserts that the letter kills, same word, letter, but the Spirit, it, it gives life. The letter is unable to save. What does it do? It It shows you some things, but it's unable to to lift you out of the the mess that you're in. The the letter and the law, they're holy and righteous and good, but they're unable to save you. It it might be able to move you to change some physical things, like to be circumcised because this is what the law says, but it was unable to change the hearts, to circumcise the hearts. This is why Jesus tells Jewish circumcised 
teacher of the law, Nicodemus, in John chapter 3, that he has to be born again to see the kingdom of God. Maybe Nicodemus would be one that we could put up and say, if anybody could see the kingdom of God, he would have been one of them. Circumcised, teacher of the law, part of the Jewish people, and Jesus says, truly, true, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, born again of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, is outward, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. So Nicodemus, you can't see the kingdom of God just by being part of uh, the offspring of Abraham or, or having the sign of circumcision. You have to be born again. And that's only a matter of the Spirit, because the letter kills, but the Spirit, it gives life. The, the Spirit of God is what can change the heart, what can circumcise the heart, making obedience to the law available, freeing us up for obeying the law, making it a reality for those who are in Christ Jesus, chapter 8, verse 4, that they can walk in and keep the righteous requirement of the law by the Spirit, not by the flesh. The Holy Spirit is the one that can write the law on the heart so that even those who are uncircumcised physically can keep it because of the work that the Spirit has done in them and through them. In fact, where the old covenant, what the old covenant and physical circumcision pointed to, what Jeremiah chapter 31 points to when he says that I'm going to light, write my law on your heart in a new covenant, what Ezekiel chapter 36 speaks of when I'm going to have the Spirit and I'm going to put my Spirit within you and he's going to enable you to walk in my ways, what, what those things were speaking about and pointing to, Paul is saying right here at the end of chapter 2, that's here. It's arrived. We're in that time where the new covenant has come, where those who are physically uncircumcised can keep the law and be part of the people of God. In verse 26, I think that's what he's getting at. A man who's uncircumcised can keep the precepts of the law because the Spirit has come and worked on their heart and has shown that there's something different going on here. That the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. It's the Spirit who frees up the uncircumcised Gentile to keep the law because in such a person, the law is written now on their heart. Those who rely on the law are in a judgment and condemnation from God. They need their heart circumcised. They're under God's wrath. And Paul intends to make sure that they know that. He makes sure that they know their need, what they are before God. Paul intends to do for the Jews what Jesus did for this rich young ruler in Mark chapter 10. Mark chapter 10, a, a Jewish man comes to Jesus, and here's what he says. He wants Jesus to help him. He says, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? It's a good question. That's, that's the right thing to seek, right? And Jesus said to him, well, why do you call me good? No one's good except God alone. But you know the commandments. You have the law, all right? You, you can hear these things. Don't murder. Don't commit adultery. Don't steal. Don't bear false witness. Don't defraud. Honor your father and mother. And he said to him, Teacher, all these I've kept from my youth. You have the law? Probably a man who's circumcised like you. You know these things. You even said that you keep them, so you're all right. Right? Everything okay? You, you receive. You're not under judgment or salvation. You should be able to inherit eternal life. But Jesus looks at him and loves him and says to him, You lack one thing. Go sell all that you have and give to the poor and you'll have treasure in heaven and come and follow me. And he goes away sad. And what's Jesus implying here? You, you still lack. You're not a true Jew. You might be one outwardly, physically, even in some of your obedience. You might look like a Jew and even a model Jew, but you're still in need. The disciples got what Jesus was talking about. And so in verse 24, they're, they're amazed. They're amazed at his words. Jesus said to them again, children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than a rich person into the kingdom of God. I won't go into the craziness of the needle gate here. We preached Mark chapter 10, if you want to check that out. The Jews get it. They say, well, who can be saved then? They're exceedingly astonished, and they say then, in response, then who can be saved? They get it. It's impossible, right? That can't happen. There's no needle gate that you have to just lose all your stuff. Or like, it's impossible to go through. And the Jews get it, or the disciples get it, and they say the question, like, who can be saved? And Jesus, he looks at them, and he says these words, with man it is impossible, but not with God. 
For all things are possible with God. With man, it's impossible. You can be circumcised. You can have some outward sense of obedience to the law. You can try to keep it. You can go down a list of, I don't murder, I don't steal, I honor my father and mother. You go down that list, but there's somewhere along that law that is condemning you because you break that law. It says, with man, it's with impossible, but not with God. We're not Jews. I'm, I'm guessing that's all of us, right? We're Gentiles. We're likely not like these Jews in that we're relying on the law. We might not be looking to the law to protect us from God's judgment. We, we might not have the argument that we're different than others because we possess something special in the same way, but we're all relying on something before God. We're like the toddler that's going to find a door to run to. So the question is, what, what door are you turning to? Where, where are you going? My guess is that many would say, if they were pressed, like, what gives you salvation before God? What, what keeps you from facing the judgment and wrath of God? I, my guess is that many would say something along the lines of, well, I, I'm a Christian, I try to follow Jesus, I do good things, and I'm certainly not a murderer. Now, what, what is that response pointing to? My morality? My, my sense of, of some sort of obedience before God? Paul shuts that door. That's not available to you. You've failed before God. You're under God's judgment. Some might say, hey, wait, but I'm part of a Christian family, so I have some sort of advantage and privilege, surely, because I've inherited something from my family. Paul shuts that door, doesn't he? Maybe baptism, like I've been baptized. That's a sign of the covenant that I'm part of the new covenant people of God. That's a sign of salvation, right? Jesus was baptized. He told me to be, you know, like, that's a sign that I'm, I'm part of the people that are going to be saved in the end. Paul shuts that door, doesn't he? The Bible leaves only one option. All the doors as we go down are shut. Closing that one, one after another, Paul just continues to shut every single door but one. Your heart has to be circumcised. That's a hard option. Because with man, that's impossible. And it leaves us with this one great reality. It's not impossible with God. That's actually the only way that it happens. Righteousness from God is revealed in the gospel through faith. There's salvation from God's judgment, escape from the wrath that we deserve. There's salvation for those who take the righteousness that God reveals in the gospel. We're so often like that toddler, right? We want to find the door that goes to what we think will give us the most joy and pleasure and fun and what we don't realize so often, but what Paul is trying to open our eyes to is that some of those doors only lead to eternal pain. But God has left one door wide open, invited us there. Look at all the joy that I'm setting before you in the goodness of the gospel. Do you see your need that this is the only way? As all the other doors are shut, do you see your need? And do you grab hold of that righteousness, that salvation that's revealed in that gospel by faith? That if you do, you can be sure that that's the spirit that has worked in you to circumcise your heart. And if you're part of that people who by faith grab hold of that salvation that's held out to us in the gospel, then we do something together as a family to remember what God has done on our behalf. What was impossible with us, God has made possible. God has done that in and through us. And so we remember what he has done through the Lord's Supper. This is a meal for believers who put their faith and trust in Jesus who have said that it's by his life, death, and resurrection that I can be counted as those who are truly part of the people of God, as the truly circumcised, because it's the letter that would have killed me, but the Spirit gave me life. Amen. So you're part of that people by faith in Jesus. Take the bread. Remember Jesus' body broken. Take a, a cup, and, and remember the cup of wrath that was poured out, not on you like you deserve, but on the Son of God for you. And take that meal by faith, knowing that that was the only option. If you're not a believer, you haven't trusted in Jesus, 
I want you to know that all the other doors are closed to you eternally. That they do not offer salvation. They only offer opening to more pain. And we said, receive the invitation that Jesus gives to follow after him and receive his righteousness. That's your only escape and only hope on that day of judgment. But don't take this meal. Instead, receive righteousness that comes through Jesus. Let's pray together as we prepare for this together. Let's just take a few minutes to uh, self-reflect, and then I'll close with some prayer. Father in heaven, we live in a world where there are so many cheap substitutes, especially in this nation where we are so rich. We have so many options to run to for temporary relief, for counterfeit joy, sports, social media, streaming services, organizations, political agendas, identities that leave us wanting. Lord, you've told us in your word that we all like sheep have gone astray. We've all turned to our own way. And Lord, we need Christ. I just pray, Father, that you would help us as your people to turn to you in our times of need, when we're seeking, when we're hurting, when we're confused. Lord, help us to see your good and perfect standard. And help us to see that you have made a way for us to keep it. Not through our own morality or our own behavior, Lord. But through the cross, you laid all of our iniquity on your son. And he died and he rose. So that we could have salvation. God, it's easy for us, even as Christians, to measure ourselves by something else. To look to these other identities and these other sources of, of satisfaction, Lord. To compare ourselves to others. To condemn other people because they don't agree with us. Lord, keep our hearts from, from living by a law. And help us to live by the law of love. Help us to be led by your spirit. To show grace to each other, to be patient. Help us to be a people who holds up Christ and Christ alone as the standard. And just let that humble us 
and make us useful, Lord, for the mission you've called us to be on. In Christ's name, amen.